Okay, well, that, that's another love song, um, but uh, has a really interesting story. Stories. This is one of the simpler songs I've ever written. And, you know, when you do a lot of co-writing, which I do, you keep ideas like on your phone, on your notes section, and you kind of run them by other writers. Yes. So no doubt about it, it's certainly a cliche. And one week, like four people said it to me like just in my regular course of my life. Somebody, I live in San Francisco. Somebody says, no doubt about it, the Giants are winning the pennant this year. Taxes, no doubt about it, whatever. People just kept saying, no doubt about it. And I thought, I better write this down, you know, like all these people, there must be some reason all these people are saying that to me. And I'd run it by um, co-writers. Well... And I didn't know how I was going to write it. Like, I had no idea. What are we going to do with that, you know? And co-writers would say, it's kind of a cliche, don't you think? And I'd say, yeah. What else you got? Which is a typical co-writer. It's like, no, let's work on something else. That doesn't excite me. For like a year, I'd run it by people. And then one day, I ran it by my friend John Scott Sherrill, who I ended up writing it with. I said, here's a song idea. It's called No Doubt About It. Man. That's great. And I remember sitting there thinking, really? Why is it so great? Like, explain it to me. And he said, and now keep in mind, the guy I wrote this with is like, well, I call him the Because every song he writes has a baby in it, darling, sugar, honey pie. Like, sometimes there's four of those things in one song kind of thing. So every song he writes pretty much. I write songs like Grown Men Don't Cry, Don't Laugh at Me, like about all kinds of other stuff, because that's what I do. But occasionally I go down this road and, and I thought, well, maybe he's the right guy to write. I'm excited about it. And he says, what if the couple isn't, they're in love and there's so much in love that there's like no doubt about it. And, and the first thing we came up with was, we were together ain't no doubt about it so he says what if they were meant to be together you know like it was ordained like they were like as thinking about they were so much meant to be together just like other things that belong together and the first thing we your instinct would be to think of like other romantic sort of like the flowers need the rain like the moon and the moon, like the stars and the, and you know, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that makes me want to throw up a little bit. It's a little too, really, you know, uh, sappy deal. And so we were just about ready to give up the idea. I said, ah, I don't know. We need to think about it. Maybe we can find another way to write it. And it was a Saturday morning and I was in Nashville at that we both wrote at and there was nobody else there because since I don't live in Nashville when I'm there I work like seven days a week I mean I'm there to write songs it was a Saturday and we go downstairs from the writing room make a cup of coffee and we go looking around the kitchen area there for a cup and for whatever reason there are no cups there are no porcelain cups there are no paper cups there are no and all of a sudden, he says to me, you know, we better go to the store, because what good is coffee without a cup? 
Because if you think about it, you're not going to stand there and pour the coffee. If you could see a video now, you'd see my hand pouring the pot into my hot coffee. You're not going to do that. We went and got some cups and we came back and wrote. Just like every lock got to have a key. Every river goes looking for when you plant a seed. It reaches for the sky just the way it is. Nobody wonders why. My coffee needs a cup. Hell, it ain't much good without it. To be together, baby. Ain't no doubt about it. Like a hammer and a nail, socks and shoes. We go hand in hand like a rhythm and blues. There's a man who hasn't got a dream about as good as a car with no gasoline. You're the one I'm dreaming of. Got to have your love. Can't live without it. kind of a funny story about that song which is so weird but we wrote that in 1995 a guy named Neil McCoy recorded it it was his first number one record as an artist it was actually my first number one record as a writer because I had those other songs before but they had gone to like number two three number four and you don't get a number two party like when you have a number one record as a writer, you get a number one party, no number three. No. And so it was, it was really cool. And um, Neil McCoy came to a party and all that was great. And I hear through the grapevine from somebody that when Blake Shelton and Miranda Lambert got married, their first dance at their wedding was that they used, they were friends with Neil McCoy and Neil McCoy came to their wedding, and at the wedding, the first dance was just like every lock. We were meant to be together. They sang this song, and I that's really flattering. Out of all the songs in the world, they chose our song to sing, to play, I mean. And I thought, man, if I ever, I don't know Blake Shelton or Miranda Lambert, and I said, if I ever get a chance on them for using this song, I thought, that's really sweet. 
And then like another well, five years go by or so. I'm busy. I have a lot going on. And somebody else mentioned it. And I thought, darn it, I'm going to like take care of this. So this, this is, goes to show that I don't like read People magazine or like I don't like keep up with all the gossip, you know. So I didn't have any with uh, Blake or Miranda, but I did know Blake's producer. His name is Scott Hendricks. And I called up Scott Hendricks. And I said, Scott, it's Steve. Listen, I've always wanted to thank Blake for like using it as the first dance at their wedding. Now, now, you have to know that Scott is a pretty talkative guy. Silence on the other end of the line. Nothing. I said, Scott, are you there? He goes, yeah. I said, well, is there Blake, I want to make sure he didn't think I was trying to get Blake a song. <laughs> that would probably be the case. I said, I just want to thank him. He goes, I don't think that would be a good idea. And I said, why not? Read the papers or... So, of course, Blake and Miranda had gotten divorced like that, like six months earlier. And I just didn't know about it. And I said, oh, I don't think that would be a good idea. Like he's... Window of thanking him or them for using that song. It wouldn't work anymore. And every once in a while now when I sing that song, in the bridge where I go, Something was missing, making me... It was you. I now sing... Something was missing, making me blue. All I ever needed was you. And Queen... Yeah, that's like it. And so on. <laughs> People crack up because it's pretty funny. But anyway, there you go. Yeah. So Neil McCoy made this his on that album. Yes. How did it get to Neil? How did, uh, did you pitch anybody else first? Was Actually, this was pretty much pitched to Neil. His producer was a guy named Barry Beckett who's since passed on. But Barry Beckett came out of the whole um, Muscle Shoals, kind of R&B meets Blue-Eyed Soul, that kind of world. And we just felt like this song was kind of fit into that. You know, just nah, that. I can't quite do it justice, you know, as a singing style. But it just had that groove. And Barry Beckett loves songs like that. So we played it for him, and he played it for Neil. Neil's from Texas. I just loved that song. And interestingly enough, is the publishing company where I wrote had three hits on that album. The song that came out after No Doubt About It was called Wink. All she does give me that wink, which is way more up-tempo kind of commercial than this song. And I remember when we got the word that, because this is like record company business stuff, you know, and we don't that usually they never call me and say uh should your song be the first single and i'm like yeah it should be we were thinking oh please don't make this song our song the first single because neil hadn't had a hit yet it was first number one and i said this song's it's not a ballad but it's kind of like it's like every life. and wink was like a stone cold like commercial number one sounding song we thought they should put them out in that and then no doubt about it. Well, we get the word that no doubt about it, it's the first single. And we were like, what? That's going to that's gonna backfire. 
And it was the number one record. So was Wink after it. So what do I know? <laughs> know any reason why they chose your song over Wink? No, I, I really never found out what their strategy was. But in this case, they were right. I mean, one other like quick story about Bad Cry is Tim McGraw chose that to be his first single. And all I'm going to tell you is because he, he really loved the song. He loved that it was about his dad. You know, in his mind, it was about his dad. That also is not scream off next big country hit. I am certain that the people at his record company were not thrilled when he walked in and said, I want Grown Men Don't Cry to be the first single. They're like, what? Huh? And yet, at that point, Tim McGraw had sold like 28 million records. So they're not going to say, no, Tim, we don't want that. You know, so I got lucky in that case. Because here's the thing. In the Neil McCoy show, again, he had never had a hit. Whereas Tim McGraw had already had 25 hits. So an artist of Tim McGraw's stature, he can put out whatever he wants. And radio is going to play it. And so in that sense, we got lucky that that song, which I love, that it got recorded by an artist of the stature of Tim McGraw because it's a song that could easily still be sitting in my catalog, even though I think it's a song. We just got lucky that an artist like that decided he wanted to record it and demanded that it was the first single. And it was a number one record. And we had a number one party. And you know what Tim McGraw did at that point? thing. He held up a yellow legal pad with a pen attached to it. And he said, I want to thank Tom Douglas and Steve Seskin for writing this song, Grown Men Don't Cry. And if you guys don't mind, I'd like to take a minute to thank all the songwriters in Nashville who start every day with this, a blank yellow legal pad and a pen, and come up with a, an idea for a song, get out their guitar, great songs, without which I would not have a career. That's Tim McGraw talking. And that's super cool. Because I'll just say that not every artist who doesn't write songs, who need to make their career what it is, not every artist feels so moved to recognize, you know, you mentioned the word ego before. There are some big egos, and, and it's Neil McCoy, also the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet, down to earth. Just super sweet. Faith Hill, his wife. If you saw him walking down the street in Park City, they'd say hi to you. Like they're, they're like regular people, you know, as much as they're superstars. And uh, personally, that means a lot, you know. So not every song on the first week of release hits number one. What's the feeling like when you get a song that goes to number one the first time? Oh, it's 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 fabulous. I mean, what it means with radio it means that song is being played on more radio stations more often than any other song that week at least in that genre so pop has a different you know uh barometer but it's a great feeling i mean as a songwriter who also sings i play in like anywhere from 50 to 200 seat places you know coffee houses and cafes and house concerts and, and i love that Tim McGraw did Grown Men Don't Cry and that 3 million people bought the record. That's 3 million people that are hearing my work via him. And that means a lot. That's way more to, than I'm ever going to get.
and how my life has turned out. And I don't, I wouldn't want to be Tim McGraw, to tell you the truth. I mean, most writers I know, like I said earlier, they love just that, yeah, I wrote that song kind of thing, but they wouldn't want to be on a stage every night, laying it down, putting it out. That's a big responsibility. And the people that do it were born to do it, I think, in general. The people who try it, who were not born to do it, they usually burn out and you wonder, what so-and-so, you know, but the ones that keep doing it for 20, 30, 40 years in country music, George Strait, Tim McGraw, Kenny Chesney, or Reba McIntyre, born to sing, Dolly Parton, you know, the longevity into their careers, they love getting up on a stage and, and they still pay a price, I think, for, you know, people talking about them or they're in the, uh, the old joke used to be, which is worse? If you're a star, which is worse? cover of the National Enquirer or not being on the cover of the National Enquirer. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Doug, but I don't want to be on the cover of the National Enquirer.